Last time on TV ate my dinner. We're actually going to talk about The Hobbit tonight. 48 frames per second was invented to fix 3D. And that's true. The 3D was actually crystal clear. But the problem is it looks like it's a theme park ride. I really enjoyed it as a movie. You know, for what you guys are doing as far as milking The Hobbit as <laughs> three movies, you're really going to be making some money. And now you're going to be disappointed that people realize it's not The Lord of the Rings. And I was thinking that at the beginning when he's like, all elves must die. And I'm like, oh. Oh, dude, we have to go to Rivendell later in the movie. How are we going to do that? In the book, they're like, oh, let's stop at Rivendell. Like, it's like the Motel 6. Like, I know a guy there. He'll explain this weird map to us. It's like no big deal at all. They didn't have 20-minute council scenes. Of Sadly, it reminded me a little bit it. of how Crystal Skulls goes when you kind of, oh, look, you know, a lot more stuff from Indiana Jones, the first movies. Yeah, but that was just a phone-in. These guys that didn't was worse, phone obviously. it in. I, I, this is a good movie. The other thing that made it a problem is it's been several years since they did Lord of the Rings, so now they're nostalgic for, for those films. And they're doing it as sort of a callback, so it's the opposite of what it ought to be as The Hobbit. Because not only are they tying it to Lord of the Rings, but because it's been so long, they're just nostalgic for making movies like those movies that pay homage to I them. think the second one's going to be The Necromancer, and I think it's going to end in Mirkwood. I think you'd have to have this, The Necromancer in the third film. Because how would they, if they come up with basically Sauron in the second movie and then he disappears? No, no, the third one's going to be The Necromancer in the build-up of... Yeah, of what's going to lead thought, into the Lord of the Rings. Here's what I predict. I predict that, that they're going to get through Mirkwood and they're going to defeat Smaug in the second film. And the third one is going to be like a wall-to-wall -wall battle of five armies where they're just going to pull every Lord of the Rings reference out of their ass but see, that's that they can. A, but that's a weird thing, and though, for a whole be the movie to take place And they're going to play that bit of violin. Aragorn is going to show up because we know that he's age-appropriate to be there. So it won't just be in the direct aftermath of Smaug, we have the Battle of Five Armies. There'll be some other subplot that they dredge up that makes it... Because the story is too big for the Battle of Five Armies to be over that treasure. Because the treasure now is not important enough to be... The, the story. They're just arguing about gold, but because yeah. they've brought this in as some kind of precursor to Lord of the Rings, there will be some larger element. And they're already sort of building yeah. to that because there's already a baddie goblin yeah. who has an army that's chasing that's chasing Thorin for a grudge and all this stuff, so that's going to be building and form some kind of alliance with the necromancer to be working for it. So there will be some greater tie-in to this than the Battle of Five Armies being about treasure. And the second one's called Sherlock vs. Watson. Sherlock vs. Watson, yeah. The final problem. In the year 2007 AD, DarkCrazy.com launched the last of its eight dimensional probes. Theorizing that one could save the world with the teachings of pop culture, Dr. Sean Buck. Gilberto stepped into the TVA and the accelerator and vanished. He awoke to find himself in a dimension not of sight but of sound, existing in an imaginary non-space called the interwebs. His only guide on this journey is Greg, the gruff co-founder of the project who appears in the form of a voice Sean can only sometimes hear. They are often accompanied by other travelers on the seas of fate, such as Hazel Lynn, Scary Gary, Tracy Luna, and others. 
I'm Ron, an experimental robot built by Sean to be his constant companion. We've been running ever since, leaping from life to life, pointing out things that once went wrong, in movies and TV, in this strange wild adventure inexplicably known as... TV ate my dinner. My name is Sean, and I'm here with Andrew and Lynn. Hello. Hello. They've done a lot of great things with the movies, with the original trilogy and this, but there's no arguing that they do some things that deviate that that they didn't have to do. (laughs) They could have left the story well enough alone, but they they just took their own artistic license because they just thought another thing would be cooler, and you just kind of have to let some of that stuff go. Some of it's pretty cooler. Some of it comes back to that. I need it to be a little bit more exciting. I need to up the tension here. And you kind of think it's, it's there's enough tension with a giant spider. You don't need to have everyone fighting as well. Well, sometimes and there's this is goes back to like Red Letter Media when he was doing the his his critiques of the the Star Wars prequels. What he said was like he would cut to a scene from the original trilogy where they're having a lightsaber duel and it's very clumsy and and, right. and very a lot of tight shots and stuff and and it looks like real people. He's saying this has dr- drama because it doesn't look like a big choreographed moment. It really looks like people fighting for their lives. And then you cut to these really yeah. acrobatic moments and you never connect to the Jedi at all. Yeah. And he was like, uh, he, yeah, he I really agree hated make it feel when Grievous real. comes after Obi-Wan because there's a scene arms. where like, Grievous is just spinning lightsabers like, like you know, Helicopter road. And everyone just gives him this look like whatever. Uh, yeah, because in real life, you and McGregor had no idea what he was supposed to be looking at. Later on, they right. came up with all these cool graphics, so you never feel like you're in that moment because Obi Wan in that scene does not know what he's seeing. So a guy's also, like spinning director, lightsaber blades Lucas, at his face and he doesn't even flinch. I don't think George Lucas is a great director of actors. I mean, I've, I've, I've yeah. heard things where they say, well, how does he direct you? And he goes, do the scene. And they do the scene. They go, that's good. We'll, we'll move on. He doesn't sort of go, okay, can we have a little bit more of this or some acting ability or anything like that? He just says, that's fine. Just do it however. It's fine. Yeah, we'll scrunch your eyes in post. <laughs> but I, we'll I think a little, that's la- a little bit later, Lucas, too, because if you you read these earlier interviews and you, you see the earlier footage, you can see the more invigorated Lu- Lucas was a masterful storyteller. He understood the craft of filmmaking a lot. Now, he wasn't an actor's director even back then because everybody yeah. was just, I mean, he's a, everyone he's had great place. At, he's great at filmmaking and at storytelling, but he's not good at actors or dialogue. That's basically. Yeah. And in <laughs> the he's earlier not good at, He's not good in the individual scenes, but he's good at these moments and these storytelling and filmmaking yeah. moments. It worked because he said in the earlier movies, it's like, I don't like to write. I just, it's harder to explain to people what the story is supposed to be. So it's just easier to write it down yourself. But what he did was he'd bring in people once he had it hammered out that that could sort of flesh it out into something that was more palatable. And it seemed like that didn't happen once he became George Lucas and reached a sort of master level. No one would question him, and he didn't ask for that input. Not even Spielberg. So they just let him do whatever, and it was a more undiluted version of of what he was 
trying. But to really, can you imagine anyone like? Can you imagine yourself saying, "No, George, I think this is a bad idea." No, I hate to meet George Lucas because that would be very difficult. Well, because I'm you have troubles with my directors now. I, I sometimes feel that way just doing this show. Like we'll say something, and you we read people online are so mean and vicious about George Lucas. Like you understand, the only reason you know who that is is because of his contribution to what you love. So yeah. the only reason that you're so impassioned that you're so impassioned right now is because of things he did right. Because if he had it's consistently like made things that you didn't like, then you wouldn't even know who he is. He'd be a joke to you. If you hadn't loved the ex-boyfriend at the beginning, you wouldn't hate him so much now. Yeah, well, the opposite, the opposite of love <laughs> is indifference, you know. But those things that yeah. we are impassioned about. You didn't about, care about Star Wars, like, you wouldn't care about the prequels. Had, a, had an, a, you know, something that affected you. But it's so funny how easy it is for people to flip that switch. I try to always remember, even when I'm being critical of how much, like, George Lucas contributed. And this is obviously a complicated person who got a lot of things right, you know, more so than, than most of us. Yeah, and that and that's also misplaced criticism in the sense that, like, you can understand why the prequels are bad because he's not good at doing actors and he's not good at dialogue. And he kind of – he's not good at not having criticism in there and, like, changing what he's doing. But then when the same people go, oh, my God, I don't want to see these new Star Wars movies because like, they did horrible with the prequels. It's like, but these will do – I think these will be exceptional just for the exact opposite reason Yeah, because we get they to are see, other people doing them. Yeah, you get to see other people's viewpoint on them. I don't know. I think it's because – and it's a double-edged sword because fans just have such an immediate kill switch. Like they, they love and hate. Like like – like you, they can. It's so easy for them to just hate George Lucas. It's like so weird to me. It's like, but how can you? I don't know how how you can do that in the context of having loved so much. Because really, all he did wrong really was he got old. He just didn't. He got tired, <laughs> right. and, and he didn't. Poor sad old man. The only thing he did was he made those movies too late. Because he, uh, then he's probably done the right thing now. Yeah, and and he is. He's like, you know, now I've done my thing and let other people have it. And and I know we we talked about this just looking at the the expanded universe is like just seeing what a vibrant world that he created. Even the expanded universe and all that kind of stuff, that was that was their idea. That was Lucas the film's idea, like let's let's make this it wouldn't be a mythology if they hadn't opened it up to other creators and said, Let's make this whole living universe out of it. Right. That's like um Quentin Tarantino now he says he'll only do like ten movies or he says and after like three or four movies he's gonna quit because he's like I he's like everybody in their career if you look at people's last movies they're never the best ones. Oh, he's, <laughs> he's right. Like, I don't want to be this guy that's still making movies. I'd rather just write or something. He and, should you know. stop now then because Django's really good. Right. If that's what he's concerned with, because you could have another kill oh, bill at any moment. Oh, maybe he's back on a, in a good streak now. He can do a few more good ones. I think that's the he went opposite down for opinion, bit and though. Because the problem is not that people keep making movies; it's that they sort of you. You always feel like they lose the love of it a little bit. You lose like the, the hunger to be good. Like you're like, oh, I hope this is great, and you're worried about people's opinion. And you're worried about just the representation of your talent. You just have to have too much confidence in yourself, and then you just you say, whatever I do is good. I'll just do whatever I want. Yeah, I think you just have to stay I hope Peter with... Jackson doesn't get too far like that. Well, I... Since we're on the topic to of the To be honest Hobbit. with you, it doesn't bother me. Like, when I really like people... Like, like Joss Whedon really got big lately, and I finally feel like, good, He's he sort of realized that potential. 
that we all hoped for him. So, yeah, that we've all known for yeah, years so, that he was going to. And the cool thing about Josh Whedon, though, is that, I mean, he started with those, a lot of, a lot of, I mean, he understands those limitations and that those are important for storytelling. And like, and so now when he has unlimited budget, he still can contain himself and contain the story and make it just as good as anything else he's done. He still writes like 500 page scripts where people are just talking. Right. <laughs> Because he's like, I want to tell a story and have the characters have dialogue, and that's that's his most important thing. I really like that, and I think what's helped him actually attain a success that that wouldn't have been as predictable otherwise is when a sort of mainstream success. He did what George Lucas said he wanted to do, which is whenever the 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 mainstream success didn't come, he would just take a step back and do something kind of small and weird. He's like, let's just let's just do something on our webcams. Let's like that's that's right. where Doctor yeah. Horrible came from. It's like let's just let's do some Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah he shot that much to do about nothing movie. while he was doing post for Avengers. Yeah, <laughs> in yeah, the Avengers offices. Off and do- yeah. But you know, a lot of these projects happen because something like Cabin on the Woods is on the shelf somewhere, and they have no idea that it might actually go anywhere but he keeps going and he's kind of he's kind of the anti-george lucas if you think about it like what his talent is because if george lucas is good at making these huge plot points and these big worlds and stories they should get together yeah because what he did like in the avengers they gave him that story they gave him all the arcs and all the big moments he's like they're going to be about including the death scene yeah all of that stuff was going to be there he's like oh people are going to hate me for this right and he's like i didn't do this it was not my responsibility but all he did was go in there and he's like great i know the story now now i just have to make 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 uh, make them earn it write the dialogue yeah make the characters real and he just made the emotion yeah how good a story that is because there were so many things he had to do like there was so few things that he just had freedom to do it's like oh my god we got iron man and captain america and thor and they got to fight these guys, and they got to like. There's so many things. Iron like, Man's insisting on bringing his girlfriend. Every 15 minutes in the movie, some new major blockbuster character is revealed. <laughs> you know, so you barely have time to tell a story because by the time you got everybody in the room, it's like, what the hell can we possibly do with them? <laughs> it's like we just make witty dialogue. That's what we do. Yeah, we make people like them. We get a little bit of good old-fashioned conflict. There's something too. There is a an actual good comparison between uh, Joss Whedon and George Lucas in in the Avengers in that the whole reason that Star Wars exists as a movie George Lucas was trying to sell it to all these studios and science fiction wasn't big back then and and you know he was he was known but he wasn't known for making big money like he made decent money he made good movies but he was trying to sell people in Star Wars, and nothing about it appealed to any studio. And finally, when they got to uh, 20th Century Fox, it was Alan Ladd Jr., I think, is the executive there, liked his work and explained the way he explained his vision. And that's what he was saying. A lot of people said that was a brave decision on my part to greenlight that movie, but I did it on the basis of the filmmaker. You know, I saw this guy, I believe in this filmmaker. And I greenlit this movie. I didn't know anything about that movie, or whether or not it would make money. And that's probably where you see like a John Carter fail is because there's not a driving person behind a picture like that. It's it's a commercial development. You know, they take a character yeah. that that's sort of an an old science fiction character that's got a sweeping story, and they bill it as the new Star Wars. But there's no George Lucas behind it. There's no 
auteur that's passionately making that. I'm not saying the, the, the director of that film wasn't passionate. I'm just saying that's not what they invested in. They invested in the epic scale of the concept of the project. But with an Avengers, we have everything riding on this movie, and we find Joss Whedon, who, by the numbers, is not a blockbuster director. But we trust in a filmmaker that we think, as a storyteller, can make this story work, and it's a success. So there, to me, that is a comparison that you can draw between the two of them and that, and between what made those two projects successful versus similar projects that are not. Well, you could say the same thing about Lord of the Rings. Sure, and that's exactly... Nobody wanted to make Lord of the Rings. They said, this is big, it's bloated, we have to kill off some of the characters to make it fun. But it was Peter Jackson going in and making these pictures, and they went, you know what, this guy can make Lord of the Rings. And it's his love of it and his driving force behind it that's made him. He's made the movie so good. And it comes down to that. It, it'll always come down to that. I mean, movies, like we're just saying 3D and the frame rate and all this technical crap we talk about, but, but it's always going to come down to the people who make the movie, no matter what the medium or the technology is. And I think a smart studio executive will recognize that. So, I mean, I think I think this was a good investment. I think The Hobbit's a good investment. But... Oh, definitely. It's, it's made all the money. It's a cash grab, though. I mean, you're taking a, a one book and you're making three movies out of it. <laughs> so, but everyone, it's a cash grab that's acceptable because everyone gets it because you're still, yeah. you're and sort of spoon feeding fans what they want. Yeah, and so because in the big criticism going into what I heard before, because I saw it like, I think the weekend after it came out and all the reviews, a lot of was like, well, this is just a slow paced. You know, not as yeah. taut and tense as the uh, Lord of the Rings. And it's just, and you watch it and it does kind of play like that. It plays, but I was like, I love it. I don't care. It feels like this is a book you're just watching and going through. I don't need it to be like. <laughs> if you love the world, you don't mind spending a little right. extra time in the world. It's, it's I mean, funny I don't to care me. if it's just slow and laborious and playing out over time. It's like, I just want to be in that world. It's funny to me that that people call it slow because my criticism of it is actually how they, they kind of try to boost right. up the action in every scene. It's like for a three hour movie, they don't have to run from every set piece to every set piece, you know, like well, we it was just that they were getting so much transition. criticism for all the walking. So they're like, Oh, we've got to run now. Well, that's where they do wrong. Cause I mean, it's not the, it's not Lord of the Rings, but that is how they get across the world. I mean, yeah. I am not going to be chased all the way from the Shire to Rivendell. I don't have the legs for it. Like, we're going to have to assume that at some point I just made my way. Some of the tension in Lord of the Rings comes from not when they're being directly chased by ring race, but the amount of ground they have to cover without being discovered because they can't right. afford to be chased the whole way. When, like, a bunch of wolves chase me and, like, Ten minutes later, I'm in Rivendell. You, it makes the world seem small. Yeah, because in Lord of the Rings, it's this kind of omnipresent thing that's watching them. Like, if they get if if they if like Sauron knows where they are, he can just send everybody to them. So, but in this, it's like everybody knows where they are, but nobody cares. I mean, they're just this group of yeah dwarves gone for a wonder. <laughs> yeah, that's the other problem with trying to give the story a greater scope. It's like it's it's going to be easy to sort of flesh us out if everyone's after us from day one. I mean, at least with the idea of the goblins, and there there are certain geographical boundaries to to where they can be chased by them. You know, Rivendell being a certain border where you know they get driven off, and then when they go they to don't Mirkwood, chase them into Mirkwood, nobody's going to chase you into Mirkwood. 
but at the same that, time, that, you're already making it. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see how, because you're saying how much they, that in Rivendale, they had to darken it up and tone it like, where it's much more jovial in the book. Riv- Mirkwood in the book is much more kind of, I mean, they're antagonists. Those elves are really not nice to them, and they're, they're kind of the bad guys. In and the they book get drunk. Point. Yeah. In the Lord of the Rings, they have that drinking scene that they put into the extended edition where Legolas can't get drunk. I'm like, oh, yeah. well, how's that going to work? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, that's true where they give because them the... <laughs> elven wine just has a bigger kick. <laughs> well, their elves are going to have their own sort of wine because, you know, Frodo sniffs it, <laughs> falls down. That's what's when I in the actual, in the Hobbit, in that cartoon that when I watched when I was a kid, they, the elves are like kind of creature things. They're not actually human, beautiful human beings. Rank and Bass had these weird yeah. style, but they, they were such neat concepts. I always appreciated that more than other interpretations because they were such stylized and weird concepts. Right. Everything was, was alien. Like Gollum was like a big frog thing. Yeah. And like the elves were like these oh, weird skinny, crazy that. things. Yeah, they weren't anything like what they should be in the book. <laughs> well, Tolkien had a big theme because everyone everyone read The Hobbit and went, oh, yeah, Gollum kills a lot of people and he strangles people and he's a threat. He must be huge. And they drew these pictures of these really big creatures and he had to go back and write little, little creature, small creature a few more times. Mm-hmm. So everyone understood that he wasn't a big, huge, hulking monster. Because that that's what made him scary is that he was no more than a, than a halfling kind of creature. It was the With corruption strong hands. of the, yeah, of of the, the ring. ring. That made him that way. That was the whole idea, but yeah, but the Rankin Bass wasn't in any way a literal interpretation. It was actually written for and designed for kids of my age when I saw it because yeah, we understood it. the visuals of like that's a monster, that's a creature. You know, you couldn't if if, if it was too real and too close to. I, I don't think that the magic of it would have it's meant as dude. much to us. The greatest yeah. adventure. Oh my God, I love those songs. <laughs> it's what lies ahead. I have that soundtrack. Jules it's funny so how I, much yeah. that dwarf song sound in this movie sounds like that song. You can tell that, that they've got to. There's got to be some influence there because, really, to be honest with you, the dwarf song. It's a different in the melody, but it's Hobbit very almost better. Like those songs are really good in that that old cartoon. Because Jules what, Bass what is we like do a folk with singer, a funny little you know? thing. Like that's that <laughs> yeah. was what their thing was. But yeah. those are funny, and I and I really to me I'm kind of glad that that we have that that sort of different interpretation of of the Hobbit, so you can still see that. I wish they'd make a good Blu-ray edition of that Rankin and Bass. Yeah, they I don't. don't I, they don't, ha, I don't. They had a DVD version, but they don't have a Blu-ray. Oh, but it, it's, I but think it's it'd be crap, nice in though. I bought, when somebody else has got the Hobbit. I bought a DV, the DVD version. It's like Movies on Parade DVD or some crap, and it was horrible. Right. It's weird to me though worst. because I My mean old VHS it, how, copy was better. How influential that single movie is to my cuz anytime like cuz I mean fantasy I mean you always think of Lord of the Rings is like the proto your love of fantasy and other things for some people it's like they think it goes back to Lord of the Rings or and to me I mean my love of Lord of the Rings and other things comes from that animated movie that first one sure, like because... it always has echoes of that cuz I saw that when I was like 3 or 4 well, you think, so that's you know, like, you're influence. younger than me, but when I was a kid and there wasn't VHS stuff out there, there wasn't home movie when I was a little kid, that would come on TV. And your yeah. whole life revolved around what aired on TV because you couldn't just, there was nothing on demand. There weren't video stores. You couldn't rent movies. 
there was I saw Star what Wars. came on TV <laughs> is all yeah like just seeing it on USA one day but there was like that for everything when you were a kid you're like oh the Hobbit's on we've got to be home to watch TV tonight because the Hobbit's gonna come out like once a year it would come on and then like the Return of the King you're like oh my god like there's like a follow up to the Hobbit this unprecedented in the history and of I the never world. saw the and the Hobbit to me was. It was even a little more magical in the sense that it was just at the video store, and it's like, oh, that looks pretty neat. And then I watched it, and I just loved it, and it felt like the secret thing that nobody knew about. It's like, have you heard about this thing, guys? It's the Hobbit. And I remember like three or four. It wasn't until I was like nine or ten that I realized how big a thing it was beyond just that movie. I felt like that with The Princess Bride because we just had the, you know, the taped off the TV version of The Princess Bride that we always used to watch. And then I went to my cousin's house and they were all quoting it and I'm like, you guys know The Princess Bride too? What's funny... <laughs> I get to university and everybody loves yeah. The Princess it's Bride. It's funny, it's like, like, that's oh, what science fiction conventions were for originally was for you to go places and find out that... Because before the internet, now there's the internet and people realize that people have the same likes but you really you think you're unique and then you realize there's whole cultures of people that like almost all the same stuff you like it's like such a, a mind-blowing revelation for you as a young person like oh my god I, I cannot believe it but that's what all that stuff w- was like for us and I, I, you must have been just destined to be a, a nerd Andrew, because it's like oh, yeah. you had no actual exposure, but you gravitated. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, all my, of, I had of the stuff like the crystals my, would just shine for you, or yeah. you went. <laughs> my 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 dad, my mom's not. I mean, not a nerd or anything at all. My dad's a big movie guy, but he actually doesn't like fantasy movies or like space movies. Like he always calls them. If it's any kind of like, is that a space movie? Like he doesn't like <laughs> any kind of. <laughs> And then, yeah, I, so you, and I have an older sister who's the, like a like popular girl kind of girl. So I had no influence. I just, these shining boxes at the video <laughs> store, I was like, what just, is this? It just appealed to you. That's so funny because I'm like the opposite kind of nerd because my mum was a big Star Wars nerd. So I watched it a lot when I was little. See, that's awesome. She introduced us to all these funny movies and these like things. So I was like grown up it's, as a nerd. That's how we And see, I have a, I have a and My brothers would watch fantasy movies watch fantasy movies and read fantasy books and that sort of thing and that's how I got introduced to it through my brothers so and I have a weird thing that. too because now like now that I have a daughter and she's two it's like my my thought process is how am I going to introduce her to those things because the way that I found them felt so magical to me because even Star Wars I just <laughs> it's this thing that came on TV and it's like and that felt the same way. It's like, what is this thing? Has anybody ever seen this movie? Like, this, this, <laughs> I'm like, get the tape, get the tape. And I just started taping all of them. And it felt like my own private thing, too. I was like, what? And nowadays, you just can't. I mean, they have the internet and there's 80 things on the, you know, there's apps. You know, you get a Star Wars app, get a Hobbit app, get a, I mean, you're, you can't escape this feeling. You can still discover stuff on the internet. Yeah, I mean, that's remember true. Remember, you had that. We had that great uh, treasure hunt episode of this show that was all these things that we try to find on the internet that are just out there. Right. I think if was a good as episode. you have kids, you probably have to come to grips with the fact that they will probably discover different things. Yeah. Because like, that's, that's like, true. like what I said, but like the fandom's always trying to figure out how one thing immediately equates to another. It's like, well, they they may not like your Star Wars. They may find their own Star Wars. Right. You know, that's the thing. Like it, it occurred to me. Uh, for years, at I'm least they're going to be too young for Twilight. Harry Potter, yeah. Yeah, Twilight is, is a harder thing, but but Harry Potter was the one that really occurred to me. You know, somebody, this is somebody's Star Wars. Like these kids, yeah, I mean, you can feel it. I mean, Harry you can. Potter. 
is you can watch it and read the books and feel like god there's a there's a like a twinkling of something awesome in here and i was like i love it but it's like it's just not that it's not there for me but it's just weird because you don't even know how old they need to be like if you showed i'm sure like their first star wars movies you have a whole generation they're going to be the jj abram ones or who else i mean maybe that'll be cool maybe that'll be the way wouldn't it be amazing if these movies, and, and I, I don't know if it's possible at this point, but if these movies they, had some kind of magic to them, like, because you try to figure out, trying. like, you know, Luke Skywalker and, and Darth Vader's his dad, and that's like, blows you away as a kid. It's like, right. that's what I wonder about if, because even if, you know, kids can't even watch Star Wars now because Lucas says you should watch them backwards, so... If he watched it according <laughs> to his vision, like it would negate all of the cool elements of the story. You guys heard about the machete order, didn't you? Yeah, it's like it's like the one, two, watching, three. Watching it. I mean, it's four, five, six, and then they two, three, four, five, one, two, three. Some of them or leave four, five, out two, one three, altogether, six. and they say four, <laughs> yeah. five, six. Or yeah, four, five. We six, consider two, three, six. Phantom yeah. Menace. We consider to be a sort of S canon. <laughs> it's there as ancillary. I love that idea. I love that idea. I mean, that's a really cool dramatic idea. Is that you go up to the point of the reveal and then you go back to the backstory, like kind of telling yeah. the story. Then you lead it works into the really well thing. in a storytelling sense. It works really well. It's a neat idea. I do think that you're going to lose something if because and, and and we were talking about this as far as the expanded universe. Part of the reason that I. I'm trying to research that whole expanded universe chronologically because the context of how they envision the story is different depending on at what point you see where they were. Like they, they act retroactively like this is what we always meant. It's like I don't – I'm not seeing that. And in fact, I'm sure that there's material that, that backs me up. So it's like I'm understanding the context at the time that these are written like at what point did you decide that Leia is Luke's sister not from the beginning clearly clearly so at what point you know did you always think that Darth Vader was Luke Skywalker's father because now I'm finding interviews that I think it doesn't sound like that sounds like they didn't know at all and it's (laughs) exciting it's like it's exciting to think that you came up with that it's boring to think you always thought that. I don't know why you're trying to push this idea that we always meant this. It's like why it's so much more exciting to think of it as a process of discovery. Because if you always thought that, then the way you told the story is sort of lame. Because <laughs> cause the, the story, it didn't communicate it in the story. And looking at prequels, you can tell that if you knew that, there'd be hints. Because there always are. Prequels always betray what they're supposedly building to so i just can't believe that you knew that and couldn't say anything because you can't help yourself if every prequel is like that every prequel is people hinting and 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 winking and 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 sort of mentioning things that they know that people are gonna know like there's no way that you knew that and didn't betray it in some way because that's what writers always do they can't help it so it's it's fun to see. So trying to figure out the context in which new viewers should watch these movies. Is an yeah, interesting and then also process. I heard about one guy that's like one author. Um, he said that he showed his son. He's like nine, eight or nine. Started showing him Star Wars. Like started at four and five and six, just showing him those. 
but he actually would wait six months too. Like he showed him the New Hope, and then he waited like six <laughs> months so he could watch that one more and absorb it, and actually like look forward to seeing. It's kind of cruel in a way, but it's also because if you just let people watch things, we just like consume without thinking, and there's no anticipation, and there's no. And he's kind of artificially trying to create some kind of like anticipation for seeing those the right way. That's another I, thing. I, <laughs> about the the expanded universe that I like is like because it began immediately you get to see that in the people trying to write stories like okay Star Wars only now new writers without being able to create new story you come up with something for these people to do and to see what do you think Star Wars is based on having only seen that it's such an interesting writing exercise like then the Empire Strikes Back comes out like there's so much more stories like now what do you think Star Wars is like oh my god and there's all these (laughs) other stories but by the time Jedi everything after Jedi is like well now everybody knows everything that's Star Wars so so it's interesting to see but but they're more interesting in the context of not knowing like how creative did you get when you weren't you know when you weren't possessed of all the information yeah and then also in that kind of stuff too is like thinking about spreading them out like that i'd actually i can't remember watching any of them you know what i mean like i don't think i did i just watched them and i don't ever remember watching for the first time yeah and i don't remember watching it for the first time or the first five times they just started becoming no, a part of yeah mm-hmm. they just started sinking i mean when i was little i didn't even know what the storyline was right. I just knew there were these movies and there was a bit where they're in the snow and then there was a bit when he was chopping people and stuff and then it's only when you get older and you go, no, I'm going to sit down and really watch these movies from the start to the finish. And you go, that's what actually happens in those movies. And it just becomes like this, because there's parts that resonate when you're really young and they're neat, but you don't understand what they are. And then as like you get the older. Yeah, and they just, yeah, I like the snow. <laughs> <laughs> I like the bit with the snow. I like the bit with the guts and stuff. Why does that happen? <laughs> but like, and then it just, you slow, because I just remember watching them every year, like multiple times a year, and they just slowly start to get absorbed into your consciousness. Well, that's where they are. I never remember watching them. It I wasn't even until I was... Yeah. Sometimes seeing the movies when I got older and actually understanding the lines, like the lines, it right. became just sort of just babble because when you were a kid, you saw the movies or heard the... Uh, or in my case, you didn't, we didn't have VHS at first, so you just had that sort of audio tape, which was like the, the read, the whatever, the read-along book with the tape that had clips right. from the movie and that's what you sat in your room and listened to because you didn't have a VHS you know back then so you memorized yeah, we know. that much of the movie so later on you're watching when it and you young, realize what I they're saying the radio. but it's been it's been encoded in your brain as just yeah. sort and, of and, sounds. and it's and it's weird how Star Wars they, there is a definite line though that where it passes into consciousness and it's when because I don't know if you but when I was a kid Jedi was my favorite because it was just awesome. It was, when you're a kid, you're like, "Oh my god, this is the greatest!" Yeah. It's got the Ewoks. Kid, and all. Yeah, because the but there's a moment where that where where you realize how awesome Empire is, and that's when it shifts into your consciousness. <laughs> like where you can, you know, I'm serious, where you actually that's judge actually them, and true. you're like, "Wait a second, this is amazing." <laughs> You know what I think too is I actually think in this is the one with the snow. This sort of yeah, process, this is the one that starts. With the this snow. is the snow. <laughs> this, I actually think that there's sort of a process of going backwards with that too because I do think in this sort of process of, of looking at the uh, the the expanded universe and all the materials that happened when Star Wars just first got created, it's really honing my appreciation because the first one is so ingrained as just being background like 
for everything else that you sometimes take for granted how monumental a film the first Star Wars is. Like, because Empire is such a perfect movie. But it builds on everything given to it by Star Wars. So it's like, well, it's like almost, oh, you could almost argue definitely one. But you could almost argue that the first one, the, that A New Hope is actually a perfect movie, and Empire is just a better film in the sense that, because even Josh Whedon had a quote where he said, like, if you're judging them based on movies, A New Hope's better just because it has a great structure. Whereas you can't end a movie like that on a down note. It feels more like an episode than a movie. Well, that's true. Like, if that had been the first movie, then it wouldn't have worked. Whereas right. being the second movie, it really does work because it leaves you knowing that something is coming next. And right. kind of wondering. So Empire, even though it's a great movie and, and the greatest movie, but it, would, it wouldn't exist. It couldn't exist outside of Star Wars as an extension of Star Wars. It cannot exist by itself. There yeah, must be that's Star Wars. And so that's what is so great about A New Hope is how perfectly structured of a movie it is. I mean, despite weird acting things and weird, like how it's just such <laughs> a well-paced story and a well-structured story. Yeah, I think people do take that for granted. And I think, like, so there may be actually, it may be like traveling backwards. Like when you're a kid, you love Jedi just because if you're a real little kid, you know, you you like the Ewoks and stuff. But if you're a medium to level level kid you just like the fact that it closes out the story it's the culmination right. of everything you expect from that story it's very satisfying yeah. it's kind of fun seeing them in different environments and stuff like yeah i mean the, the, the whole job, costumes. The, it's actually a backwards movie because yeah, look, her hair is different the, it starts out stronger and sort of becomes less strong throughout the film like the definitely the best sequence in the movie is like is the tatooine Sequence. Yeah, that's, that's like, why I always loved it because Luke was a badass in it. That's when I was a kid. That's why it was my favorite because like he's so awesome in this one now. <laughs> and because there's another there's another moment that uh, that Lucas is talking about that, and he says, and they're showing clips from that. He doesn't specifically say it's that scene, but they're showing the clips and you're talking about that scene in general. And he's saying one thing that Jedi gave him a chance to do is you you had to build this world with the other films so you, but you didn't get to do anything in it because you were spending all the time explaining this world like making it real right and so Jedi is the first movie where you actually just get to like saving Han from Jabba is simply an episode unto itself it's a necessary thing you have to tell in that story but it's not necessary to the rest of the story of Jedi it's an episode by itself that they had to tell so it's the most fun because it's just them going and playing in that world it's you seeing something like that could have been an issue of the comic or some other offshoot it didn't have to be something happening in a movie it was just planet they're on yeah saving han from jabba and then the, the rest of the movie is sort of almost a letdown from that point because the rest of the movie is simply plot and exposition like, now we got to explain how we're going to blow up the Death Star, and then we have to blow up the Death Star. So the only part of the movie that is just simply satisfying as far as being a story unto itself is that first act. So that, when you're a kid, you don't care about the structure or any of the rest. You don't care that, oh, the third act was pretty predictable. You just remember those images. <laughs> and, you know, them running around on the skiff, you know, with all the lightsaber play and all that, that, that stands out for for you as a kid, that's a very strong sequence. But as you get older, like you develop a sort of intellectual, almost pretentious appreciation for Empire because it is actually good on a, on a level that the other movies aren't. 
But then I think there's a point where you regress even further and realize that if it weren't for the genius of this idea of this first movie, then none of it would be possible. Yeah, so I mean, these different levels of appreciation. Yeah, I mean, it, the first one becomes like there's a part where you don't like the first one just because it is kind of awkward and it's just kind of goofy in a way. But then you look re- a bit whiny. Yeah, but then you realize how genius it. I mean, even if it's by accident, how genius that weird collection of all those awkward performances in certain ways and him being whiny actually works and all this stuff is like wow, it actually it kind of is like a beautiful mess. Well, it's it's also I really do think you know, the story itself, as far as not just the structure, but the way the story is told, it, it's kind of a shame because people do say I was reading online and people were talking about something to do with Star Wars, and someone said Lucas is a terrible storyteller. It's like you're a fool to to think that because even if you think that that the prequels didn't live up, even if you think those were a letdown, it's like this we're all just talking about the story that he. That he put right, out. We're still talking about it. Yeah, still talking about it. This is like eight episodes in a row where the people are like, oh god, they got on. Somehow they started start the Hobbit and got talking about to... the damn Star Wars. <laughs> well, because it's so iconic. I mean, I don't think. I mean, Lord of the Rings is huge, and I mean, it's the. I mean, it's of that fantasy, this first blockbuster fantasy of the novel in that sense. But it still doesn't have some of. The, it's it's a much more complicated. It's much more adult story, and the and the themes and the tone of. That you'll never get that kind of, I don't think you're ever going to get that resonance that Star Wars has. Well, for some people. I mean, uh, this argument among my friends, one of my best friends is just like, Star Wars is the best thing and Lord of the Rings really doesn't compare to it. And my Ben just goes, no, Star Wars doesn't compare to Lord of the Rings. Well, I, no, I don't <laughs> think, I think, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not saying either or. Like, I think it's a much more kind of, <laughs> it's a much more complicated and sophisticated thing. story. I just think because of that, I'm think I'm talking about the mass level. Like what people, you know, I mean, also they, it's kind of limited in what they can do with that. They can't make more Lord of the Rings, really. <laughs> or, or you <laughs> wouldn't can't. want them to. Let's At some point, yeah. they're going to run out of steam. Star Wars is something that's sort of just a broad universe that you can you can play in, and it's almost good. That Which is funny because originally, originally Tolkien was just trying to make some sort of mythology, and he probably would have been okay with people, you know, coming in and trying to add to it. He had so many stories and things that he just made up and made up for his friends and that sort of thing. So the fact that it's more closed down now, and really they are both just original stories that are just set in random places. Yeah, that's what's weird. It's like that world yeah. started off so much more rich and and alive than yeah. the Star Wars world did, but now it's but no gone one's the opposite allowed. way. That is one thing that because they both start out with the same goal, which was literally to create a mythology, because that was that yeah. was Tolkien's goal in creating a sort of Welsh mythology. With, uh, but Tolkien's son's very protective of it's it. It's unfortunate in that because Lucas's goal was also, I mean, and especially if you read these earlier interviews, he's, a, he's studying sociology and mythology and, and psychology. I mean, a lot of really deep thought went into what seemed like very simple ideas because he understood what would resonate with people and he was deliberately trying to create that. And what. Yeah, what, the hero's journey. What sort of, what sort of made that world real was when they kind of got to the point where they opened it up and things started happening outside of the movies. And he understood that as a marketing thing from very early on, but I think later, maybe it was always marketing to them, but they inadvertently made it mythological by doing that because then you had what 
people will now start talking about is like it's like King Arthur or something where you have these all these stories by different people and different accounts of certain things and they're not even if they're contradictory to each other that's how mythologies work and form and congeal yeah you know so now you have this this rich world because there are so many voices and it gives it credibility because it's not a single person telling the story it's coming from everywhere and that's how mythologies happen. That is unfortunate that Lord of the Rings is sort of locked down because without those different viewpoints and those different contextual interpretations, because to be a mythology, it has to be open to interpretation of whatever time, which is what the movies yeah. are doing. Yeah. We're changing the And when you look within, within the Tolkien stuff that he actually wrote, there is different interpretations of the same events, and he's written stories from two or three different angles and rewritten things. And within what he's got, he's got such a dense and, and really rich mythology going on there that you could tease out that it's taking a long time to tease out, you know, 70 or 80 boxes full of just messy old manuscript that his son has to find. And I can understand what he, where his son's coming from because, you know, so, it sort of belongs to him. He feels like he's the keeper of this material. But it's kind of a, it's a dumb battle to fight because, I mean, he'll die and yeah. then in 50, 70 years, they'll do it. Like, I mean, they, I mean, once it goes to public domain, that ty- that property, people will kill. I mean, because they're not, it won't pass on to his kids, right? I don't think he has kids. Yeah, and I don't think. Yeah, he does. I does think he? It's weird. His, his kids actually help him with it. But but how does that how does that work with that estate? Does that pass on to them? I well, once something crosses in the public domain, it's public domain. So at some but point, I, mean, I don't. Yeah, think but it's but be after Tolkien died. I mean, I know Christopher Tolkien actually has done some stuff in that too. So those bits would be actually once he dies in seventy years after he dies, I guess. But what I'm saying it's a losing battle. People are gonna do it anyway, so why don't you let people do it while you're here to help them and guide them and yeah. stuff. If 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 yeah, Lucas so has done anything, it's sort of proof that that as time moves on, new additions to to the saga don't ruin and this is what I think fans don't fully understand. And a new addition to the saga doesn't ruin the existing story. The only th- the way that he's muddied it is that he actually went back and wanted to change the existing story and erase all other copies. <laughs> That's where they, where Lucas has gone wrong. It's like you're changing the story and then you're trying to say you never told it any other way, and that's crazy. But no, it was always like this. Yeah, you didn't know any different. To the point where some of the things he says were always his vision are questionable. Yeah. Like it's it's almost but people can, are starting to feel like they're not, going crazy when they hear him talk because it's like he'll it's come back and say, not no, even deliberate on his part. Han never shot first. It's like, wait a second. Yeah, you just misinterpreted what you saw yeah. in that scene. And that, and all that stuff is just like, I mean, it really does come down to money. Like if you, I mean, it, would he have fought that hard? Like if, he, if they were marginal successes and they weren't the big things, they made three movies, but they were kind of, they were cult things, but they weren't, would he, and he didn't have all this money. Would he fight so hard to go back and add Jabba talking to Han early? Or would no, he, he wouldn't would he have that. thought, well, see, even that he was wouldn't just, do that. even that was marketing. That was it's a like good a idea because scene of- those movies were just to sort of tease the, the coming of, of the prequels. But would he have had time to rethink kind of nothing scenes that wouldn't bother him? Yeah, but way? my point is, yeah, I mean, you should only add the stuff that you're willing to fight for. And because he has unlimited money, he doesn't need to fight for anything. That scene made no and sense And you don't anyway. have to fight. Like, you own right, it all. That's, that's, that's the other thing about Lucas that is sort of unique in that, like, we compare it to Star Trek sometimes, but... No single person owned everything Star Trek. So 
regardless of what they may have wanted to do with the expanded universe of that franchise, they didn't own everything. Like, they'd license it out to different people or whatever, and you had a studio that was able to tell people, well, we're going to make books or comic books or whatever, and they had very limited input as to what... There's no George Lucas seal of approval. Yeah, but, I mean, it's exciting in Star Wars because even when you're talking about these sort of dumb comics that get made, like, oh, Dark Horse actually went to Skywalker Ranch and they started talking about these novels and what storylines would happen in the comics. You're like, really? That, like, a caucus happened? Like, a summit meeting happened at Skywalker Ranch to discuss whether or not they were going to kill Chewbacca in a Star Wars novel? It's like, Yes. Very serious discussions happen. Like that makes me kind of <laughs> love it. That because on the one hand you read that George Lucas could care less about the expanded universe, but on the other hand you hear that oh we wanted to do this, but George personally said no. So so that it's sort of the, this sort of two sided argument. Like you can say that he doesn't care, but at the same time he does cultivate that mythology. He does want to keep that present. He doesn't care, but he needs to control. But well, and that's where it's going to be a little bit different now, I guess. So it'll be interesting. But yeah, this is. I'm looking forward to it. I, I just think that's why Star Wars has been allowed because they've they've managed it in such a way they've opened it up, but they've also regulated. So it's not just a bunch of formless, unrelated things like in Star Trek. You're not going to compare one property to another. Even some of the TV shows haven't always been consistent with each other. So here's a here's a here's a question. <laughs> sort of back to the Hobbit. <laughs> if <laughs> what I mean, like forget that they're doing the Hobbit now, and Peter Jackson's doing the Hobbit. Like take the Lord of the Rings and take the original Star Wars trilogy. Like talking about retelling and actually changing and adding on. Like which one of those would you think would actually be more appropriate for a reboot, like a remake in the future? Now, Lord of the Rings like or ten, Star Wars? Ten years from now. Well, it's difficult to say because Star Wars is an entity of itself. It is the the source material, whereas Lord of the Rings, it's made from a book, so it's always going to be more ripe for a remake because it's it's got. There've already been multiple adaptations as as there are yeah. now, but at the same yeah. time, I would still think if you're going to Star Wars, would probably be more prime for a reboot in the nearer future, just because it's older. Yeah, I mean, they're kind of saving themselves that trouble by sort of re. By doing the J.J. Abrams reboot, which is you sort you of know, like, revitalize the franchise without having to just outright remake the first film. But I mean, J.J. Abrams so good at that. Yeah, it's going to happen one day. It will I mean, because, but by then, Star Wars. By then, it will be King Arthur. Like right. we're, it's an interesting time for us because, like we, especially like like me, I. I was alive, like I remember a time before Star Wars, not that well. <laughs> it's like five years old. But but it is funny to see this sort of cultural explosion within your own lifetime. Because in another 20 years or so, it'll be like Buck Rogers or anything else. It'll be something that's always been around as far as Yeah, it's so know. funny that's like, I mean, people out that care less about Star Wars, they're like... <laughs> after all the huge hype in the early 90s and then now people like us just talk about it all the time and it's marginally you have things to talk about and people are like finally <laughs> finally there's nothing to talk about and now like oh my god it's gonna be the biggest thing <laughs> for the next 10 years it's gonna be the biggest thing i think that there was a time where it could have died out 
Like there was a time that's one of, one of the most yeah, important too. points of my research right now is trying to find the exact moment that the candle <laughs> almost went out. When it hit bottom. It would have been around like 1989. Because there was a moment briefly, but it was a moment of about two years where there was like nothing Star Wars. Like zero Star Wars. And even that's not true. But as far as like putting out, that's when like, that's when young Andrew was things. watching on USA. <laughs> yeah. that's, when it was, that's when the seeds are being planted. But that's to me funny because you'll probably never see that again because it's such a property now that is has just sort of exponentially branched out all these different media. Especially now that Disney has oh, it. Especially now that Disney has it because you, it's in comics well, and books. it's timeless it's like now. Yeah. Trying to write down like I have this this growing spreadsheet of Star Wars stories that I'm trying to chronicle when they were created. And it's like just every now and then you pull a thread and you're like, Oh God, I'd never even heard of that. It's like, you got to add, I got to look at that. Who knew? Even going back in the seventies where it seemed like a pretty light period. So it, it is funny now, like there's almost no chance because it's just gone. And there's so many different incarnations, you know, they've got like like Clone Wars, there's different eras of Star Wars being treated in different media in different ways. Like different, it spawned separate mythologies. There are like prequelists and there are non-prequelists, you know, and there are people who are straight, expanded universe kind of people and there are people who don't believe in that kind of canon at all. It's like so <laughs> weird. It, it sort of is a mythology now because you have all these different ideas from different places coming out. So that that's fun. I I do think it'll take something like Lord of the Rings longer. And I, you know what I don't know though because when th- Star Wars is a character piece, but I think it is such a fun world that, that people have successfully created stories in Star Wars that don't have to do with the characters. And I wonder if you could do that with Lord of the Rings, like is Middle Earth interesting? Well, one enough? could almost argue that a lot of the fantasy these days takes place in the in the Lord of the Rings, well, yeah, like the that sort of permeated the mainstream fantasy genre anyway. Because I mean, there'd be no D and D if it weren't for, I mean, your, your modern in understanding of fantasy actually comes from Dungeons and Dragons, and that wouldn't exist if it if it weren't for Tolkien. So they sort of just almost blatantly ripped off concepts from Tolkien and made that game, which then subsequently inspired all other fantasy of a mainstream kind of nature. As mainstream as fantasy gets. <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of old Tolkien in a way. It is. There'd That's be no true. Star Wars. It's funny how Star the Star Wars versus Lord of the Rings argument is kind of funny because they feed each other. There probably would be yeah. no Star Wars if there'd never been no, the Lord of the Rings. But then they wouldn't be making Lord of the Rings movies if it weren't for Star Wars probably. So they, they sort of yeah. keep elevating each other. It's yeah, Christopher I Lee. Yeah, the new Star Wars movie. <laughs> yeah, Christopher Lee. Christopher he's, Lee. He's, he's, Christopher the Lee. he's the <laughs> link. So it's, it's a weak link because it links everything. us to the prequels. But what I kind of thought for a second because I mean, he was like eighty-five or something when he did <laughs> Lord of the Rings, and I when I when he when I saw him coming to the Hobbit, I mean, he's obviously standing still. Like he is, out, <laughs> I mean, he is not yeah. in good shape. But part of me is like, is he CG? <laughs> he kind of looks really stiff. They don't like Tron. He's just got to just do the sound. Is that a robot? <laughs> I mean, he's got to be like 90. Yeah. He's got to be pushing funny. 90 or be, 
Have you? Did you see? I put on. Was it? I think it was a couple of years ago. There was a Christmas message from Christopher Lee, and it was this wonderful, like twenty-minute just ramble about the state of everything. And he's just, he says, "Oh, he's old." <laughs> yeah, he is ninety. He is ninety. He's born in nineteen twenty-two. Yeah, so he's doing really well for all of that. And yeah, his, it, to be a legend in things. It's funny. He is a legend. It's funny thinking about Star Wars prequel stuff like. Like I was looking at all this stuff today and I thought, oh, here's a novel about Yoda and I clicked on it and it's like a picture of Yoda from like Attack of the Clones with the thing and it's like, oh God, whatever. <laughs> like, like you're not even interested. This, this growing fascination with all things expanded universe like excludes like this giant portion of, of oh, stuff Lord. that's created just around the prequels. It's like, I'm not interested in that. Which is... Only the real things. Well, in a sense, I'm not interested in it because it, at that point it had exploded to the point where itemizing individual projects is not as necessary to studying the history. But but yeah, to a lesser degree, it's because that particular period of the story is less interesting to me. But it is it is fun. It's all fun. I'm not, and I think the biggest difference is. Lucas, when he made Star Wars, was saying, I want to make a children's film for children of all ages. That was the concept. And I think in the prequels, it became more of a children's film. Like, there are kids that, you know, like, my nephews love the Star Wars prequels. They they don't care. But even that, that's like the Red Letter Media thing where they have these huge political debates in the plot. It's like... The critical plot points are all these well, kind of complicated say political what, minutia, and they're like, what? Say what you will about the other prequels. The the Phantom Menace is pretty fair game for critique, storytelling-wise, for that reason. And that's where I think he t- he tells the best story, because it's like the it doesn't follow a very good structure. It's like, say what you will about what you wanted to happen or whatever, but the plot-wise, it does not follow a very strong structure, which does separate it from right. the original Star Wars. I actually like Attack of the Clones a lot. I like Revenge of the Sith as, as far as their fun movies. Yeah, those, they're fun movies. I mean, the, at the time, the, it's just the act. I mean, it's just the dialogue. That's really... I mean, you could almost... If they are really well acted, you could kind of just get by... I mean, it was just thematically kind of being weird, <laughs> but it's just they're kind of cr- cringeworthy sometimes to watch. I think it's the green screen again. I think yeah. they, there's too much. I mean, you see Star Wars and they're flying out to Tunisia, and they do that in the Phantom Menace sometimes too. It's weird to see where you'll bother to shoot like this scene out in the desert, but then you'll have this really important scene, and it's a bunch of guys in a soundstage in front of a green screen. It's like what? We're just in the desert. We couldn't have shot something real dramatic out in the wind and stuff but it's like that's hard to imagine like in the, the scene in, in the original Star Wars where he's like you know looking at this binary sunset or whatever and you've but got this, all real this looking. building music and everything you really feel there's very little there that that has to make you feel like you're in an alien world but you feel it you just feel well, that's why I, I love the actual well there's two sons yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, that's why I actually love Fellowship the most out of all those movies, the Lord of the Rings movies, because there's so many shots that just kind of give you chills where they're actually in these woods and it's actual sunlight coming down. Like he's telling right when he sends I mean, Frodo off, he's mm-hmm. like, stay, you know, stay off the road. It's like a real shot. 
it's in the woods and it's really kind of interesting looking. That fantasy stuff is so powerful when it's when it's natural looking like that. That's what and people don't understand. On, so it's much... the reality that makes the fantasy work. Yeah, you just put them in those costumes and put them in the forest. It looks amazing. But then later on, they just kept getting into, I mean, Two Towers is one of my least favorites just because there's so much weird green screen in that movie and like weird effects and stuff that just, not even from just a technical point of view, that just kind of take you out of it. I, I just wish that everything was shot much more naturally. Well, you, it, it you get so into good. those big battle sequences and they can't shoot on location. That's part of the problem with the scope of the movies. It's like when it's about well, four guys running through caves and woods and stuff. It's it's much more powerful, but then look in, in Moria when they're running, you know, and it looks and that obviously works, CG in places. Well, I think there, there are me spots, though, CG where you can Moria, they went on top of a volcano and actually shot on a volcano. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the CG bothers me only when it's like, really the daytime stuff. It's like the last scene of uh, Two Towers is when they're when Gandalf is, you know, there's all these people on horseback and they're just standing there and he's like, you know, this is the first move or whatever. It's just a weird, it's against the green screen and it's supposed to be daylight and the sun shining down. It's supposed to be this real kind of raw, natural environment and it's just in a studio and it looks really weird if you watch it again. Like, the next scene is great with Bilbo and I keep saying Bilbo, Frodo and Sam and Gollum has a little, (laughs) because that's in the woods and it looks amazing. That stuff just gives me chills when it's actually in a natural environment. That's sort of like what we were talking about. The very first scene they shot for the whole trilogy of that, and this is a mistake, was like the scene where he's seeing them off to the Grey Havens or whatever. They're all going off to the Grey Havens or and. And that's what Ian McKellen, I think it was Ian McKellen who was talking about that, saying it's difficult because they didn't know each other. Like, they, they it right. was the very first thing I they like ever shot. I like how you keep saying that was the first thing they filmed. It was and not. So, that's what they said. It was shot in the middle of them. No, that's, no, nah. they said that's what they shot. Watch the appendices. <laughs> it was not the very first thing they I, shot. Whoever was doing the interview said it was. I think so they I said they shot it right. I, on the, one of the special features because there's a whole other story about that. I think they did say they shot it early on. But it was crap. So yeah, they were, but it's not. It's not the first. They, they went shot. to shoot it again, and they all the guys they had shot to it two cr- or three times. Yeah, all the guys had to cry and do all the stuff, and it was like really emotional. <laughs> and then they got the film well, back, it's and true it was that like it was it was early on. It wasn't you know they hadn't been yeah. to Mordor and back again. They shot it early on, but it wasn't the very first thing. they But shot. they did it again like the second time. But there was like dust in the lens, so it was all messed oh, up. Lord. So they had to do it a third time. The, the well, first time they shot it. The first time they shot it. Because it's still Samwise forgot to put his jacket on properly. Yeah, yeah. He'd forgotten his waistcoat. But it's got like a just a little guy in a wig is supposed to be Bilbo walking away and it doesn't yeah that like, looks a bit weird and I guess it did in a wig and it, to be the final scene like the final goodbye I think they could have gone back and cleaned the lens up and done that one more time because it doesn't it doesn't really work compared to the rest of it and that's part of it that's part of the problem with with shooting a trilogy like that all in one go and then just like rearranging everything all right. Yeah, thanks for listening. You know, you can listen to our episodes at tv8mydinner.com. You can come to us at forum.tv8mydinner.com. Google Plus. Facebook as well. We're on Twitter. The Google and the Twitter are about the same. I just post stuff to them. I don't get a lot of feedback from people on those, but, but the Facebook we do. And Greg is very active on the Facebook, as we've mentioned before. As as you mentioned in the last episode. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I like to give Greg grief about that. But yeah, that's the best place to see Greg because he can't drop you from being our TV8 My Dinner friend. 
as quickly as he would from his own personal friends list. And he doesn't ever come to the forum, so there you go. Yeah, we just complained about him he on the forum. He may actually be on the show at some point. I know he wanted to be on tonight, but he has familial responsibilities. But we may be hearing from Greg at some point in 2013. Uh-huh. So we may end up doing another Hobbit episode every time he's going to be on with us. And we're like, nah, we'll record anyway. Then he comes back because he wanted to talk about the topic. And he's like, let's talk about the Hobbit. It's like, okay. <laughs> Greg won't be. Hobbit part two coming up next time. Greg won't be on the show until April at this point in the recording schedule. All right. Good night. This has been TV8 My Dinner. Don't forget to visit our forum at www.forum.tv8mydinner.com. Dog Creek!